Good morning, Sterling. It is good to be with you here this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, um, verses uh, 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. We're going to be finding ourselves in a, in a text that if you have been coming to church for some time um, or have grown up in church, is definitely a story that you would have heard. And if you've been here at Sterling, it is a passage you would have been heard preached by, before uh, by me. I've preached on this text before, and uh, it just happens to be that I am preaching on it again. I just had uh, it's how the rust has fell. And uh, I've got a bit of a... A bit of an echo. Can am I? This is just me. Um, it's a bit distracting. If you can just sort that out, it'd be great. Thanks. Uh, so I hope you, uh, though it's a familiar text to us all, I, I think God has just been speaking to us directly through what Matt has shared with us today, and I think He wants to share and uh, draw our hearts in closer to Christ. So have that in mind as we read. Uh, we do see there's a shift in gears with Mark. Uh, he has gone from parables, and suddenly we're going to see four consecutive stories that happen quite quickly after each other. And the purpose of these stories is simply this. It is to find out more about who this Jesus is. Um, it is just to help us understand better who Christ is. So we've got Here we have Jesus calms the storm. He's going to be the ruler over creation. We see his God over creation. The next story we will see is the demoniac, the, the man who had many demons in him, legion, where Jesus cast those out into pigs. Um, we see Jesus is ruler even over the demons. We see that he is also God over disease and death and the story of the lady who, has, uh, who bleeds for 12 years and then also of the healing of Jairus' daughter. So these, this is the shift in gear and in theme that's taking place over the next while. Uh, so have that in mind as we read in Mark 4, this is 35 to 41. Here it goes. On the day when evening had come, it's dark, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus and his disciples have just finished a really busy day's worth of ministry. They've been casting out demons and healing the sick, as we see in Matthew's account of the story that happens before this. And also in Mark's account, we see he's been teaching parables all day. We've just had a select four shown to us. But Jesus is exhausted from a busy day's worth of ministry. It's nighttime. He hops into the boat, and he leaves the disciples with the job of getting them from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And as they are heading out on their trip to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we see a great windstorm picks up. Now, windstorms are quite common on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 600 feet below sea level. And after a really, really hot day, the hot air would rise. And the cool air in the plains and up on the mountains would rush down to fill the gap that the hot air had made. And so a windstorm can happen like this. 
catch you off guard if you were out on the water. If you've ever been paddling, surfing, or fishing after a berg wind, now and again you can be out there and the west wind can come out of nowhere. You can literally see it come across the water in a very similar way this has happened to the disciples. But it's a great storm. We know that because the Bible says it's great but also because you can see that the disciples, which a large majority of them were fishermen, would have been skilled in navigating through storms who were unable to do so. And the waves were so big that they were crashing over into the boat and it was filling up. And out of desperation slash frustration, they rushed to Jesus at the back of the boat and they wake him up and say, teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? And he gets up, He looks at the storm and says, peace, be still. Turns to his disciples and says to them, do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? And as his disciples see this take place, they take a step back and they ask themselves this question, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is the question that Mark wants you and I to answer. He doesn't tell us anymore. I'm sure there's a lot of conversation that took place after that. A lot of, did you see that? Or how did you do that? A lot of questions that were asked, but it, aren't, it is not recorded for us because he wants to leave us with asking this question, who is Jesus to you? It's vital for us. And we see that this is important for Christ as well, even in his question to his disciples. Do you still have no faith? Or in in Mark's account, do you have such a little faith? For Jesus, the importance here is not so much the size of the faith that matters, but rather the quality of faith that matters. We know that because in Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus says you can have faith the size of a mustard seed, and yet you can make a mountain to move. So it's never about the size, but about the quality of faith. And the disciples here seem to demonstrate a poor quality of faith. They expect Jesus to be able to help. They run to him for their credit to say, help us. But they are blown away by how much he can help. Kind of like when you go to a magic show and as you, you know the guy's going to do some tricks. But when you see the tricks, you're still blown away by the fact that he did that trick. Wow, did you see how he did that? You knew he was going to do it, but yet it still blows you away. The expectation is far beyond what you expected. Yet, I think we can give the disciples some um, credit uh, this, uh, or give, sympathize with them this morning. If we just have to consider our own prayers for a moment. In times that we go through various storms of life, we run to Jesus and we ask for help. And yet when he answers our prayer, because we are a church who believes that he hears our prayers, and he answers our prayers, yet when he does so, we are blown away by the fact that he did. (laughs) I, I asked for help and he came through. So I think sometimes we find ourselves in a similar place. And in those moments, we demonstrate that while we might have some faith, there's a poor quality to it. But the deficiency of the disciples' faith isn't so much that they have a poor expectation of what Jesus can do. But the deficiency of their faith is found in the fact that they have a poor understanding, really, of who this Jesus is. We see it with the disciples. They, if they had truly grasped what Jesus was preaching about all those times when they had listened, if they truly understand what kind of Messiah he was going to be, that he was the heavenly sent redeemer who had come to usher in the kingdom of God, but also to die for the sins of the world, surely then they would have known that no storm would be able to thwart the plans of God. 
if they truly understood that that man who was sleeping in the back of the boat was the agent of all creation, then surely they would know that creation was not able to snuff out the agent of creation. But yet they hadn't quite got that yet. They hadn't understood. There was, a, there was a deficiency to their faith. They hadn't understood who Jesus was. But Jesus proposes something important to us this morning. And that is that fear drives out poor quality faith. Fear drives out poor quality faith. Or to, and we can see that in his statement, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the opposite can be true as well, that good faith is able to withstand fear. But here's the thing about fear. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. It's obvious in this case, there's a, there's a storm, there's a waves crashing into the boat, it's dark, you can't see, you can't navigate through it all, your life is at risk, fear is obvious. But sometimes fear manifests itself in a way that is hard to recognize. And so what that means for us as Christians is that we can sometimes be living in fear and not in faith and not really know it. But what I think what we see in this text is we see three examples of fear manifesting itself out in action. And if we can identify what those are, then we can look at that in our lives and realize, actually, I'm living in fear and not in faith. Does that make sense? I see some nodding of heads. That's good. And the first one is quite simple. It's that we know we're living in fear and not in faith when we start to accuse God that he does not care. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, do you not care? What the audacity. Had they not been with him when he had broken the traditions of the elders to heal the man with an an arm that needed to be healed on the Sabbath because he had compassion? Had he not healed many others because he loved and had compassion upon them? Had he not gone and hung out with the outcasts, with the sinners and the tax collectors because he had compassion and loved them? But yet, in moments like this, they seem to, in the moment of fear, they come in, don't you care? And I think sometimes we pray like that as well. Financially, we keep going through a difficult time. Lord, don't you know that I'm really struggling now at this expense? Didn't you know I already had this all? (laughs) Don't you know that I'm overwhelmed? How could you allow me to have this extra thing come into my life? Don't you know that I'm already lonely? Now this person is going or this has happened or this is putting strain on my marriage. Don't you know? Don't you care? (laughs) We sometimes pray like that during trials. We question him. And don't you care about me? And I think we do this because we're trying to, in some way, manipulate the hand of God in acting more speedily. Isn't it the case? Don't you care because we're hoping he's going to say, I do, now let me show you. And we see that with the disciples. Matthew's account, they come to him and say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And in this account, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? If you add those two together, save us. Don't you care that we perish in? They want him to hurry up. <laughs> but it's an accu- when we come along and we accuse God of not caring or trying to manipulate his hand into coming quicker, it's probably because we're living in fear, not in faith. Another one is that they acted in a way that was rather hard toward Christ. They, were, they acted mean-hearted. Their words, don't you care, is not only one to try and manipulate him, but also probably had a bit of a sting behind it trying to give a bit of 
punch out of frustration that he was just sleeping when they were doing all the hard work to try save their lives. And in moments of fear, what happens is we become people who become loveless. <laughs> loving is not easy when you are living in fear. The natural human tendency in the midst of fear is to self-preserve, right? Not look out for others. And so we make sure we care for ourselves and that if that means others get hurt along the way, that's okay. I remember when I was about 12 years old, my friend Max and I were heading off to a party down in Ganubi and uh, we were walking then, we were going to arrive a bit early, so we decided to take a bit of a detour to take, make the trip a little longer and we headed through the avenues. And as we were doing so, a gentleman opened up his gate, he was leaving, and his two big Alsatians were so excited, they ran out, saw us, and kept on running, straight at us. And in that moment, fear arose, and I left Max, I don't know where he went, but I went closest to the wall that was there, and I'm pulling myself up. And then I realized Max was there because he was grabbing my leg and pulling me in front of him, self-preserving his life, and I was in self-preservation mode, I was using my other leg to kick him off. In moments of fear, we care about ourselves, not others. And when we start to, in times of trial and difficulty, become loveless, it is difficult for us to live in faith. And we don't love with our words, we don't love with our actions, and we certainly don't love with our finances. And uh, it is an area that we need to watch out for. Are you loveless? It's probably because you're not acting in faith, but rather fear. And lastly, one of the marks of that, and there's many more, but ones that we see in this passage is a mark of fear is that we try to do it in our own strength. The disciples tried to do it in their own strength first. The skill set came out, the storm arose, don't worry, I've got this. This is not my first rodeo. I know how to do this. They try to navigate through it all. It's only when the waves have gotten so big and are crashing into the boat and they realize they are doomed, they run to Christ. And when we live in fear, we do not run to Jesus, but we try to do it in our own strength and our own by ourselves first. And now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we, aren't, that we are to be passive, that we aren't to solve problems. We certainly are. But the first port of call is not to do it by ourselves, but is to run to Jesus to run to him for help. I, I, I can't imagine what the story would be like if it was a bit different, if they ran to Christ first. The storm came up, things got a bit hair-raising, and before the waves had gotten so big that they started to crash in that they went to Jesus and said, listen, things are getting a bit rough. I know you sleep and things are tired, but would you mind just coming and help? Would you just step in? Sorry to disturb you. Oh, okay, wipe the sleep out of his eyes. Peace be still and go back to sleep. Story done. And, I, and I, I wonder how often we could just run to Christ first. Lord, help. I think I know what to do, but would you give me guidance? Would you give me strength? Would you give me wisdom? Would you help here? F faith is demonstrated by running to Jesus first. Fear is when we try to do it all in ourselves. Now, before we talk about how that looks and uh, what we, how do we live in a, a, a place of faith, a stable faith, I want to I suggest to you something first, because as we talk about marks of fear and living in fear, at least in my heart, I know there have been plenty of times that I've lived in fear and not in faith. And at times it can make, cause a sense of shame and a bit of guilt and, and it cause an unnecessary tension. And, 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 and what it could lead to is you not running to Christ for help, but staying away because you haven't done it, so you're just going to leave it. 
But I want to show you how Jesus deals with his disciples here. He deals with them incredibly tenderly. They (laughs) accuse him of not caring. They doubt his ability. They misunderstand who he is and what he's able to do. And yet Christ doesn't cast them off. He doesn't say, listen, chaps, I've been walking a journey with you for some time. You still don't get it. By the time we get to the shore, it's done. <laughs> I'm picking another 12. <laughs> he might have had to want to do that with Judas anyway, but he's um, he picking another 12. He doesn't call them pathetic. He doesn't say, listen, I'm going to let you sink and walk on water away. He gives them a tough question, sure, but he's tender. And we see this in Psalm 103, that God deals tenderly with us. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. J.C. Rao commenting on this says, he does not deal with believers according to their sin, nor reward them according to their iniquities. He sees our weaknesses. He knows our flaws. He knows our shortcomings. He's aware of all the defects of our faith, hope, love, and courage. And yet he bears with us. Yet he cares for us. Yet he's with us. He's there when we make mistakes. He's there to pick us up when we fall. He loves us all the way to the end. It's wonderful how tender he is in moments of struggle. Have I, has the mic gone? All good? Okay. I'll carry on. Um, and so that's, that's important for us to know. He deals with us incredibly tenderly. And I, I want to I say, though, that how do we live then in a moment of faith? How do we live by faith? How do we make sure we have a stable faith? And this might be the, one of the most important things I say to you this morning. Faith is most stable when it is centered on the person of Jesus. Your faith will be most stable in trials when it is centered on this person, Jesus. Your faith doesn't need to know as much about the promises of God as much as it needs to know about the person of Jesus. Your faith doesn't need to know as much about what he's going to do to solve your trial as much as it needs to know the person of Christ. Why is that the case? It's the case because you could know the promises of God, but if you don't know the person who's made the promise, you don't trust it, right? Stranger comes up to you and makes you an elaborate promise or close friend who you know and love and they love you and they've been there for you through thick and thin comes and makes you that same promise. Who are you trusting? You're trusting your friends. Why? Not because the promises are different, but because of the character behind it. And in the same way it comes with God. Friends, you could know all the promises of God off by heart. Heck, you could know them in the original language and know them backwards in the original language. But if you don't know the God who made them, they will hold no weight in the time of trial because it's the person of Jesus that you need. You could know the plans that he's going to do, that he's going to do this and that and this to solve the whole issue. He could give you the 10-step plan of how it's going to come through. He never does that, but he could And if he did, if you did not know his person, you would not trust it. Fear would still be there. The most important thing you need is to fall in love with this Jesus and to know him. He is what you need. And may I suggest to you that the disciples would have never known as well as they did now that Jesus was ruler of the storms if they weren't in that storm that day. And so often for us, the storms that we go through life give us a unique opportunity to grow in our understanding of who this Jesus is. 
And so it's, let me explain what I mean by that. There, there's nothing like going through financial difficulty and then coming out the other side, God providing for you to know that God's a provider. Or before you knew, because the preacher had told you, you had heard about it at Sunday school, you, but now you know you know because he's come through. You, you know that God's a protector, but it's nothing like going through a, a series of danger and difficulty and yet being protected that you now at the other side know you know. It's nothing like going through suffering and hardship to know you know that God is your comforter. It's nothing like having everything stripped away for you to know that God is ultimately all you need. And so I don't want to belittle the trials that are in this room this morning because I know there are some, and some big ones, some that make my 30 years of life experience and the things that I've gone through dwindle in comparison. But may I boldly suggest to you this morning that the hardships that you are going through, as unique as they might be, give you a unique opportunity to know Jesus in a unique way. And you're going through them, right? Yeah, I mean, you're there. So you may as well cling on to Christ and know him more. Oh, what a tragedy that you would have to go through the storm, come out this other side battered and bruised, but yet not know Jesus any better. Oh, but how much better it is that you have drawn closer to the God of creation to know his comfort and his love and to know him through the midst of it all. And you might say to me, Joe, I don't have any of those experiences in which I am able to cling upon. I've never seen that. And so I, maybe, maybe let me just speak to that a little bit for you. One, I think if you've been for Christian for some time and gone through trials as a Christian, you need to look back at that. Sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty. In the midst of the trial, you go, God, where are you? But when you come out the other side and you start to look back over it, you see his hand over and over and over again. And for many of you, you might go, I can't remember that. Well, then you need to go and just look back and you will see God has been gracious to you and good to you. But may I also say, even if you had none of those experiences, if you became a Christian this morning, you have this book. And this, 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 what's even more foundational and more important than our experiences is what's written in here. This is truth for us. It reveals who Christ is. It's got stories of his provision and of his character. And this is sufficient enough, far sufficient, for your faith to be able to be hung on in times of trial. There is so much in here that you can rest your, your faith on. Dive into it. Get to know it. I don't know how to read my Bible. Don't worry. We've got a 10-week course starting tomorrow. Get into it. This is not about becoming religious and good at reading. This is about getting to know the person of Jesus more. And if you want that, this is for you. This is where you start. But even if you became a Christian today, this morning, as I'm preaching right now, I want to tell you that you have enough to hang your faith on. Because as believers, where we get to look, we look to Jesus on the cross. You want to know where your provider is? Has God provided for me? Oh, look to the cross. What do you see? God provided his most valuable thing, his son, to come and die for you. He gave you his life so that you might not die eternal death, but know him forever. Are you alone and by yourself and know everybody else has abandoned you? Look to Jesus, be, look to the cross because what do you see? That God who was uh, in the glories of heaven left it to come to you when you were stumbling alone in the dark to come and save you, to remove the sin that was before you, both of you so that you might be reunited with him forever. Or do you need protection? Look to the cross. What do you see? 
You see that God died for you so that you might not have an eternal death, that he removed you from the slavery of sin and placed you in his family as sons and daughters of God. The cross is sufficient for our faith to be able to hang on. Look there and you'll find it. And if we are wanting to grow in our faith, we need to grow in the understanding of this Jesus. And this text, this text is wonderful because it gives us uh, some massive parts of who Christ is. There are two major categories that you can break the person of Jesus into. You can break it into that he is fully man and he is fully God. It's a paradox. It's, but scripture clearly teaches us that he is fully man and he is fully God. And we can't downplay the one for the other. Because when we do so, we miss out. But we see in this text, probably more than any other, other barring the death and resurrection of Jesus, this truth being shown to us. We see that he is man in the fact that he is tired after hard days of work. Amen? Oh, he worked hard and yet he was tired. So much so that the water was flying into the boat, probably wetting him, and yet he still slept through it. Exhausted. But yet we see that he is God in the fact that even in his human tiredness is able to say, peace be still in creation, listens to the voice of its creator. And this is wonderful for us because it helps us know a number of things. It's wonderful for us that he is human because it means that he's able to sympathize with you and me. He understands the hardship of life. He gets it. He's not, a, he's not just some knowledge, but no, he has experienced it. Are you poor and needy this morning? Oh, Jesus understands what it means to lack. In, in Matthew 8, verse 20, it says, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, I don't have a home. His ministry consisted of him preaching on borrowed boats. The boat that they are in is not his own. It's somebody else's. He rode into Jerusalem in a triumphal entry on a borrowed colt. He died, not in his own tomb, but in a borrowed tomb. Just for three days, though. He didn't use it for long. Slightly used. He understands what it's like to be poor. Are you alone and and neglected by those who should love you but just don't? Jesus gets it. Man, his own people whom he created reject him. His own people, his own nation, Israel, (laughs) when he arrived, rejected him. We see this in John 1 verse 11. It says, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. Came as the king of kings, and yet the kings of the earth did not recognize him. Out of the 12 that do follow him, they're they're fishermen and tax collectors. Out of the 12, one would betray him and the other would abandon him in his darkest hours. He was being led off to be crucified. He understands what it means. Are you misunderstood and misrepresented, slandered and persecuted? Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. He was called a friend of sinners, a Samaritan. Man, we've already seen he's been called the prince of demons and a madman. They lied about him at his trial, saying he did things that he didn't do and said things that he did not say so that he might be, pers- uh, that he might be crucified and killed. Are you tempted? <laughs> it just feels so heavy and, and it's weighing down. Jesus knows what that feels like. Matthew 4, we see that Jesus is tempted by Satan himself. I know you are tempted sometimes by the demonic. I promise you it's not Satan. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's got bigger fish to fry than ourselves. But Jesus got the, he got Satan. 
He was tempted. Is it weary and hard for you? He understands. And we see this in Hebrews 2 verses 18. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. He suffered when tempted. It wasn't a breeze like walking through a park. It was hard. He suffered under temptation. Yet we will see later in Hebrews 4 that he did not sin, but it means for us that he's able to help us for those of us who are being tempted himself. But one of the hardest things to carry as a person is the guilt and shame of our sin. It is incredibly difficult to do. To feel that weight and that burden of things that you have done to hurt those you love, to to do those horrible things that you thought you would never ever be able to do and you can't even believe that you've done it, to carry that is heavy. I want to know that you can run to Christ because he understands. Not because he himself sinned, but when he died for the sins of the world, he bore the sins of the world. He bore the sins of the prostitutes, of the murderer, of the pedophile, of the thief, of the drunkard, of the liar, of the adulterer, of the porn addict. He bore it all. You name it, he bore it. And so he knows what guilt and, and sin and shame feels like because he made it his own. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. And you might say to me this morning, but Joe, my sin's unique. <laughs> what I'm carrying is particularly burdensome. You cannot understand what I have done. And friends, I can tell you I do not. But the beauty of what Christ has done is he didn't die for the sins of the world in general, but he died for yours particularly. He didn't just airy-fairy everybody's sins, but yours. He made it his own. Oh, that sin, that shame, that guilt that you feel, that the things that you have done, he said, I will make it mine. There's only one person that can understand what you are carrying. Nobody else can, and that is Jesus. You can run to him. This is why the writer of Hebrews gets so excited in Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16. He says, for we do not have a high priest, this is talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here's the result of all of this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Run to Jesus. Run to him. For it is help only in Christ and he understands. But my friends, that means absolutely nothing if he is not God. If Jesus was not able to stand up that day and calm that, that, that storm, it would mean nothing. Why? Because it would mean that he would be able to go, oh, I'm so sorry, I have compassion, but there is nothing I can do about it. The deity of Christ means that he has the power to be able to intervene. He has the power to comfort. He has the power to take a storm and make it calm and peaceful. We see in this text that Jesus is having an incredible nap. He's tired. He's exhausted. And if he's like me, he probably woke up feeling like he got hit by a bus. And as he does so, he's still able to say, peace, be still. There's a demonstration of his power. 
And we see that he has the power of God. In, in, in John 1 verse 3, it says, Through him, through Jesus, through him, all things were made. That without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus has made all things. Through him, he was the agent of all creation. Not only did he make all things, but he holds it all together. We see that in Colossians 1 verse 17. He sustains and holds everything together. The stars twinkle as they do. The planets move in the solar system as they do because he is in control of it. Nations rise and nations fall because he has allowed so. Seasons change because he has determined it so. We see that demons are cast out in, in the Gospels. We see the leprosy healed with a touch. We see with the word people are healed. This is the power of God in Christ. And as a result, we are able to come to him, to a one who's able to sympathize with us, but at the same time, able to do something about it. I don't know your situation or the storm that you are going through, or the one you will go through inevitably, but I know the one who will comfort you, and the one who can be there for you, and his name is Jesus. And he is the one who's able to intervene into your great storm, and give you a great peace. But I've got to, I, Mark has asked us a question this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Have you got an answer? Have you, do you need to fix your eyes on him again and just remind yourself of this wonderful Christ that you have? Maybe you're not Christian. Maybe you've been dragged here, kicking and screaming by a spouse or a friend has somehow uh, uh, got you in, you lost a bet and you're here, whatever the case might be. Or maybe you're searching and you're figuring it out and you're trying to figure out this thing. This, the message for you this morning for Mark is he wants to tell you that you are in a storm. You're in a great storm. And whether you know it or not, the storm is going to engulf your life. And you, if unintentionally or intentionally, are trying to, with a bucket, try to get all the water out the boats. But it's a hopeless case. But the Gospel of Mark tells us there's a Savior in the boat with you, and his name is Jesus. And if you can realize your situation that you find yourself in, and you go to Jesus and say, Lord, save me, he will get up and say, peace, be still. And the sin that is causing this great storm will be removed. You will be forgiven. The enmity between you and God that is causing this amazing wrestle storm that's going to lead to an eternal death will be taken away. And there will be a great peace between you and God. But you have to come to him. You have to see that there is a storm. And you have to come to him and say, I need help in the storm because I can't do it myself. And if you do that, friends, Scripture promises to tell you that that storm will be taken away and you'll experience the greatest peace that you have ever experienced that this world cannot offer you. But you have to come to him and do so. But as a Christian, the question also to you, who is he? Have you lost sight of this wonderful Savior? Has the storm of the last 18 months or so meant that you have become um, lethargic in your pursuits of him, that you've taken your eyes off onto the things of this world and onto the dangers of it or the, the glories of it or whatever it might be, and you have taken your eyes off him? Run back to your Jesus. 
Fix your eyes on him again, like we heard Matt say, so that we might run this race with endurance. And you do so by running back to these scriptures and reading it and devouring it because Jesus is found in these pages. Get to know him, love him, reignite faith in your heart by recalling what he has done for him, you for, uh, what he has done for you. Make sure that you remember what he has done, all those acts for you, and let it stir up faith in your hearts, for there you'll find joy, even in the midst of a great storm. I want to conclude with a, with a hymn by William Coper, he, it's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And can the worship team come up while I read it? It says the following, it says this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds he so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in a blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wonder of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, not only that we might see him from a distance and know him intellectually, but the call of this faith is to know you personally. And so Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning and those who are watching online, uh, that you would stir in up a deep personal relationship for Christ. For those who have gone wayward and wandered afar through the, the craziness of life, or whatever it might be, may you draw them in again. May they know that you are tender and loving toward them and feel your warm embrace as they fix their eyes on you again. I also want to pray for those who don't know you, Lord. We ask that you would reveal to them the great storm they find themselves in. But also, Lord, may they see with the clarity that there is only one who can calm it, and that is Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to this word uh, in worship and praise. Uh, so would you mind uh, standing with us as we sing a song of song, one last song. In Christ alone, my hope is found. My light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are sealed, when striving cease, my comforter. Sting for 
statement of faith. This is the experience of when we look to Jesus. So it is well with my soul. One more time, it is well with my soul. time together. Be grateful for the wonder of your word, the wonder of Jesus, this anchor to our souls, immovable, unshakable, eternal, calling us home. And I pray as we leave this place today, oh, we'd be bathed in the presence of Jesus and the wonder of your words to us, Lord. Oh God, we pray that as a people, we would sing this song over and over, it is well with our souls, Lord. As the waves and the wind press in, I pray, God, Christ would press closer. That, Lord, this wonderful presence of Jesus in our lives ensures us we're going to make it home. We're going to run this race. We're securing you, Jesus, today. 
Help us run well, we ask. We're grateful for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Lord give you much peace this week, and we'll see you next Sunday.